gathered us for a particular reason. Uh, not just have a conference, although it's always good to have a conference, but there's a particular word from his heart for us, and um, we're hungry for that word. Amen. So he wants, he wants to um, do something related to our experience. I appreciated the sharing of one of the dear saints after the first message. Um, uh, we shouldn't be outdated in our experience of Christ. Amen. We need an upgrade. <laughs> Lord wants to upgrade our experience. Right. So what would he do and how would he do it? Well, he would speak a particular word to his recovery, and he would give us the opportunity this weekend to review and apply this particular speaking. Amen. So for those of you who maybe weren't here this morning, we're on Colossians, and we're on specifically as our, as our general subject, knowing and experiencing the all-inclusive. So we didn't stop there extensive Christ in Colossians. And we saw that Colossians, we saw this morning, that Colossians as an exceedingly deep and profound revelation of Christ in his person and work is there for us so that we would appreciate his person and his work, but even more so, so that we would track that same depth in our experience, that we would advance to a deeper experience. I don't think I mentioned this morning that in Galatians 1.15, did I mention Galatians 1.15 this morning? Okay. Galatians 1.15, <clears throat> Paul testified that it, when, it, when it pleased the Father, he revealed. So it pleased the Father to reveal but it pleased the Father to reveal Christ into him. So the revelation wasn't just that there be a revelation, but the revelation was so that Paul and derivatively now us would follow that revelation into experience. And in the line of the um, deep and profound revelations of Christ in Colossians, it's significant that the first one and the one that governs all of the other ones, which as an aggregate make this such a profound book, the first one is that Christ is our allotted portion and that as we enjoy him as our allotted portion, that this causes us to realize we are experiencing him as our good land, good land in which we can live. And this good land in which we live now is an expansive territory which will not run out in our experience. Rather, that we need to explore and uh, adventure and expedition to try to, to, try to reach its uh, perimeters. But you know, when we approach one of the perimeters, if we, if, if we were to approach one of the perimeters, the perimeter would extend, and uh, this, this, this good land of ours, this, this wonderful Christ, is, is uh, to enlarge in our experience. Amen. Now, <clears throat> where we live 
typically involves consciousness of where we are. So if one of us here, resident maybe of north central Texas, were to travel overseas to Russia, say, and you'd notice after you arrived at the airport, you'd look around and see, and I'm not in Texas anymore. <laughs> I'm in another place. I'm in Russia. And you would uh, <clears throat> begin to look around and see how you could carry yourself and how you, would, how you would live there since it's a new living space for you. And you would have consciousness that you were in Russia. Now, <clears throat> the significant placement of the first of the profound aspects of Christ in Colossians as the portion of the saints, as the fulfillment of God's Old Testament people's good land being a place on which we live allows us to have, to hold this experience of him in our conscious frame. This calls us and draws us out of a passive um, oblique um, that word may not be so familiar uh, a, a, a detached situation in relation to the Lord the Lord has come into us full of intention and full of desire that we would have a dynamic, full, rich, mutually involved situation, yes, relationship. Yet, let us consider once again that most of the time, oh, how disappointed he must be. As he comes into us, do you think he is aware of us? Do you think he's aware of us? As he lives within you, do you think he's aware of you as he lives within you? Yet, as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, most, most of the time we grieve him or quench him because he is conscious of us, but we lack responsive, involved, matching consciousness of him. So what would he do? What would he do? It's a challenge, no? What would he do? Here in the Lord's recovery, he has serious believers. We're seekers of the Lord. We're serious about him. But yet, too often we're detached. Um, minimally 
and only periodically and fleetingly involved with him. So what would he do? Well, he would like to make us aware of him. Consider him. Think about him and, and sense him in his burdened, desirous personal presence within us. So what would he do? <clears throat> well, he would show us that for our experience in the book of Colossians, for him to be all-inclusive to us, that is, and that involved our having an enlarged consciousness of him, he would make us aware that he actually wants us to live in him with consciousness of him. So we enter into him with awareness and we have reminders, stimuli, things say, oh, wake us up, oh, oh, oh yes, 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 yes. And this is, this is, I believe, the significance of the line of the extensiveness of Christ, the extensive experience of Christ that we have as a subject for today and tomorrow, <clears throat> and that we had for the Thanksgiving conference. Now, matching the territorial aspect of Christ, the Dimension, dimensional aspect of Christ in which he would invite us to enter into him and live in him. We have um, an important New Testament verse that you're very familiar with, but let me apply it again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it talks about a prepared territorial experience. So how territorial or why territorial? Well, in 1 Corinthians 2.9 it says, what, therefore, what eye has not seen? Which goes quite a distance, right? And which ear has not heard, which goes a further distance yet, And what has not come up in the thought, the consciousness, the heart of man, which is even broader, that has been prepared. He is, he is prepared. That is, so <clears throat> the one who is dwelling in you has prepared a territorial experience of himself with a view that if you have this realization of this territorial experience and enter into it, that he could use this territorial experience to augment your consciousness of him to where it matches his consciousness of you to where you're conscious of him all the time. 
all the time. So, so for, whom, for whom is this territorial experience prepared in 1 Corinthians 2.9? It's for those who love him. Those who love him. So for whom is it possible to have an expanded and enlarged consciousness of the Lord longitudinally, chronologically, time-wise, and spatially in space? For whom is this possible? It's possible. It's been prepared for those who love him. So related to consciousness, our consciousness of him, which is, I believe, part of the importance of this first aspect of the territorial, uh, first aspect of the extensive Christ in, in Colossians in verse 12 of chapter 1. Which is to, which is to evoke and bring forth more consciousness of him, we have this principle. And this principle is that <clears throat> our awareness of the Lord, that is, our consciousness of the Lord, our sensing of his personal presence with us is up to whom? So we know that, and maybe we talked about this before, probably we did, I can't remember for sure, but when we first, when the Lord first came to us, and we first were, I use the word again, enamored, awed by him, was when we first beheld him. We first saw him, and he captured us. He overturned us. He became, he became the defining factor of our life, and we had, at the time of our being born again, a definite, strong consciousness of him. Do you remember? Remember? course, in our morning message, we, we had chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, as you have received him, so also walk in him. Continue your regeneration experience. Well, we didn't that much arrange for him to come to us that time, right? It was his grace, his indescribable mercy that found us out, he came to us. And he became part of our being, part of our living, and he initiated what was to be a life long and a life of mutual consciousness. He was conscious of us, we were conscious of him. But because of his gentlemanly manner, and because of his deportment with his, the ones who are the object of his affection, 
to not be overly strong with them, to not be overly forceful with them. He limited himself in a certain way that he wouldn't come to us again in a way that forces, obligates our attention, our consciousness of him. And for the rest of our Christian life, with maybe, maybe minor exceptions, what he does is he waits for us to restore our consciousness of him. So we restore the consciousness of him that we had at the time of our regeneration when we would like to. Now, sometimes that restoration occurs when we have a long period of, uh, a long autumn or a long winter with the Lord, and we just, we just feel discontented, and, and we say, what has happened? What am I doing? Why am I like this? Why am I dry? Why am I without the Lord? And you know what that is? That's the beginning of the restoration of your consciousness of him. That was your consciousness of him. Again, not usually because you had the good idea, but because although he doesn't force himself on us anymore, he does, he does operate in our surrounds to place certain kinds of reminders sometimes. And things can happen to us or things can be noted by us that remind us, oh, the Lord. And then, and then, and then we think, yes, the Lord, oh, and that, that is the beginning of our consciousness. And then that consciousness just kind of rises, rises, and it becomes a steep curve. The more we think about him, with consciousness of him, the more we want him. The more we want him, the more we think about him. And eventually, audible or not, from our heart, there's the cry, Lord, Lord. And that cry, Lord, turns our heart, turns our heart, and there we are once again, face to face with him, fully restored to the lost consciousness. And we feel, we feel, we feel good, we feel good. But <laughs> um, that may not last long because of the complications in our personal life and different, different things happen and, and so, so the consciousness fades. And, and, and then we, we have to, we have to um, pass through this process again. Now, what is it that supports, reinforces, and strengthens the impetus of our restoring of our consciousness of him? It's that we love him. It's that we love him.
in your entire Christian life, there is no time that you have turned to him or that you will turn to him or that you do turn to him that your love for him does not increase. Because as we'll see a little later on the outline that we have, have for, for, for today, for this afternoon, we'll see that every time we restore our consciousness of him, we give him an okay, we give him an okay, and he, as the one who is love, embodies love, and his loving capacity enters into us to cause us to love him. As we love him, as we love him, we become those for whom an enlarged experience is prepared. And that enlarged experience prepared is the personal Christ as the consummated spirit, as the divine and mystical realm in which we are to live. If we're to live there, we need to love him. And as we love him, we restore the lost consciousness and we place ourselves in him once again. So this is a little bit of just um, why it's important this time that we talk about the extensiveness of Christ in Colossians rather than just the fact that he's all-inclusive. We talked about this morning the fact that his being all-inclusive, actually, actually, his being all-inclusive includes all that he is as this wonderful, life-giving spirit who is now territorial. And in him, as the territorial enlarged spirit, is all that he is. It's all inclusive in there. And when we're within him with like consciousness, the Lord in his wisdom matches his intrinsic pneumatic being with our practical living setting and allows us to have a new realization, have, have an enlarging realization of, Lord, you're this. Lord, you're this. Lord, you're this. Lord, you're this. And eventually, as we, as we live in him as the extensive one, we benefit from all that he is in, in his all-inclusiveness. But we pointed out that because we lack, we lack a realization that we're living in him with consciousness that we simply wait for us to wait, wait until we encounter a need and then call on him and watch him meet that need and we recognize that he is that aspect, that he's, he is that, he is that. But eventually, eventually, we're just too, too good at making it on our own and we don't experience that much of what he is in his all-inclusivity, all-inclusiveness. But, since this is why these days are so wonderful, so important, so infusing, so special, we can explore, entrepreneur, this matter of learning what it is 
to have consciousness of the fact that we're living in him. And develop this capacity. Now, I said develop this capacity. Do you know when this capacity began? Your capacity to sense, to sense that you are living in him? Back to this morning, when we were regenerated, and the whole entire planet became new. And everything had a new look, had a new feel. There were new sounds. There were new sights. There were new aromas. Everything was new. This was a signal to you that you are now in the territorial extensive Christ. Amen. That capacity was put into you in your regeneration, but it has to be developed. Developed until from the time we wake up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night, we have the sensation, my, I am living in the person who died for me, who gave himself up for me. I'm living in him, and he, in his spacious, infinite, inexhaustible reality, is waiting for me to enjoy him and for me to engage him and him to engage me in item after item around me, in circumstance after circumstance of my day. All the while, I'm conscious of him. So back to 1 Corinthians 2.9. Who is it that we're conscious of? We're conscious of the one we love. And so from the time of our regeneration, we can't help but love him. The more we love him, the more conscious we are of him. And the more conscious we are of him, the more we'll realize he wants us to live in him with a sustained consciousness that he is not only, that he has come into us as the good land, and now he wants us to walk in him as the good land. So this is kind of where we got to this morning. And so, dear saints, the messages we have or the, the outlines we have for these sessions form a wonderful sequence. And so where we are now in this, in this sequence is that Hopefully we have an aspiration that we would develop the capacity to sense and project ourselves into him as our good land, walk in him, live in him with new and ever fresh consciousness of him. We'd like to, we'd like to do that. All right? Okay. So the next, this session is that in Colossians, Christ is presented as the preeminent one. As the preeminent one. He's everything. So he's preeminent. He's the head. He's the, the one from whom all things were created, as, as we had in the verses that we read, 15 through 17. 
He's the one who's first in the old creation, first in the new creation. He's, he's everything. Now, the burden of the session is, is he such to you? Is he such to me? And the connection here is that when we hold him in preeminence, we are conscious of him. Is that not right? Yeah. Okay. Let's say you're not conscious of him. Is he preeminent? Well, yes and no. In the universe and on the throne of administration of the universe, he's preeminent. In your experience, is he preeminent? No. When is it that he's preeminent? He's preeminent when? Because you love him. You hold him in your present conscious frame. And you exercise this developing capacity of yours to hold him in your consciousness. So... <clears throat> This matter of preeminence takes the matter of consciousness out of the commitment and relationship of affection and applies it, applies it to the extensive experience of Christ. So as we saw this morning, for him to be preeminent through amazing points of revelation points to his extensiveness. And when we experience him as our dwelling space, our land, with, with consciousness, and we give him this kind, of, this kind of preeminence in our being, it revolutionizes our Christian life. It changes everything. Back to our sister's uh, confirmation this morning. Do we not need an upgrade? Okay, here's the upgrade. Please download it. <laughs> and please don't think that you don't know how to install it, don't know how to run it. It knows how to install. It knows how to run. You just download it. It'll work for you. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> let's, um, oh, uh, one, one more thing <clears throat> before we start the outline. Um, here we're talking about preeminence. You know, some of you know me and have heard me use this word before. Preeminence, as used in, in this outline, is a relationship truth. Preeminence, as used in this outline, is a relationship truth. Colossians 1.18, applied in practical experience <clears throat> of the extensive Christ, fulfills one of the most striking 
aspects of Old Testament typology. And this striking aspect is that, <clears throat> that of the burnt offering. In the Old Testament, the enjoyment and experience of Christ was typified by the handling and offering of the sacrifice or of the offerings. And in the presentation of these, of these offerings, in the book of Numbers chapters 1 through 7, the first of these offerings is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering, you'll remember, was one which, in which an Israelite offered something to Jehovah with and through the priest, and it was, it was offered in its entirety. Nothing was left. It was absolutely for Jehovah. Now, this is in chapter 1 of Numbers, but when you get to chapter 6 of Numbers, there's a law of the burnt offering. And the law of the burnt offering was to, obviously, be how that burnt offering was to be applied. And you may remember in verses 9 and 12 of chapter 6 of Numbers, it says that whoever offers this burnt offering, the priests were to make sure that it was to remain on the fire, burning slowly and continuously, affording an uninterrupted rising up of, of sweet-smelling savor to Jehovah for his satisfaction. It was to be it was to be uninterrupted from evening to morning, then from morning to evening. This was, this was the picture. So an Israelite was to live a life of the burnt offering. What this involved for them was that, in, in the significance of the type, was that Jehovah was preeminent. He was the important one. Everything was to be in reference to him. And this, in its application to the New Testament believers, is a relationship truth. That means that when it comes to, when it comes to a situation where one chooses between Jehovah and X, the believer is absolutely for Jehovah. That's the burnout. When it comes down to um, relationships, is it Jehovah or is it this person? It's Jehovah. And he was to be, he was to, the Old Testament believers were, were to be for him in every way, in every situation, every setting. Now, for us now as New Testament believers, this, this in its fulfillment, especially in the, in the epistles of the Apostle Paul, refers to the many circumstances of our daily living. 
when we find ourselves in a certain circumstance, is Jehovah no longer existent to us? Is he off somewhere in the heavens? Or do we sustain our consciousness of him? For us to not lose our consciousness of him is to give him preeminence, and that is to be absolutely for him first and for him to emerge into our living. So this is an Old Testament picture of the preeminence that we're going to talk about now. So here, just to review very quickly the outline, which is incredible. The outline you have in your hands is incredible. Apparently presenting the doctrinal truth that Christ is preeminent has, that we hold him as preeminent in all things. Well, of course, he is, he is preeminent. This is the doctrinal truth. So here, here's how the outline goes. God has an administration, and in that administration, he cares for one thing, and that is that Christ have preeminence. So God works in the universe, to exalt Christ and to, and to make, him, make him preeminent. So we'll see, see that uh, on, on the outline. So um, we have no question here, right? Then, however, God in his administration has an economy. In that economy, in that economy, also, God works in his divine trinity and in his arrangement, in the elaboration of his economy to make Christ preeminent. And then through his throne and through his economy, he operates eventually so that Christ could be first. He makes Christ first in the entire universe. So this is an important point, and this is, this is what we sang about in hymn 495. Now, for our knowing and experiencing the all-extensive Christ, we have to see that the entire universe, the throne, God's economy, and his lordship and preeminence in the universe is held in suspense and is waiting. is held in suspense and is waiting. What does this mean? This means that God, the all-powerful, the omnipotent, yes, the preeminent one, qualifies and restricts his omnipotence and his preeminence and holds it back, restrains it, restricts it. Where? Not in the universe overall, 
in your personal universe. And because he would not overstep, because he would not coerce, he would not seemingly insist that you care for him, that you love him, that you hold him in your consciousness, he would withhold his intrinsic and universal omnipotence and preeminence in the universe. Until or unless you reach a point where in your personal universe you would like to restore to him his relinquished preeminence, give it back to him. Then, when he has that, as it relates to you, now he can take the further step and declare himself to be preeminent in the entire universe. But you see, actually, he's still not preeminent in the entire universe until he's preeminent in yours. And today, he's not. He's not. Yet. That's why it's so good we're gathered together here. Amen. So that he can recover, Amen. be restored, Amen. his relinquished preeminence. So the outline goes on to say, how do we do this? We have to love him. Amen. <clears throat> so we have to give him the preeminence in our love. So we can stop for a moment and say a short prayer inwardly. Lord, what about my first love for you? What about my care for you as it comes to details in my life, personal preferences, relationships, and choices? What about my first love for you? Do I have consciousness of you and give you preeminence in the principle of the burnt offering in instance after instance, juncture after juncture, relationship after relationship, or am I oblivious to you, inaccessible to you, uninvolved with you, foreign, alien to you? These are strong words, but this is, this is what it means. So, so if, we, if we give him preeminence in our love, then, then what we can do is we, based upon that, oh, this is lovely. This, is, this can be called the dynamic of delight. This is the dynamic of delight. Once we give him, once we give him preeminence in our love and restore to him and continue our love, not only in newness but in quality, not only in time, but in quality, then we, we can easily cooperate with him and give him preeminence in our being. Which we may not do. Remember, if our heart is not turned to him, if we're not contacting him, if my spirit has not become our spirit, we have not positioned ourselves in him and on him is the good land, and we're not walking in him. So, but when we do give him preeminence in our being and we contact him, there we are. 
We're in the expansive territorial Christ living in him. Then, guess what? This isn't, as Brother Jerry said this morning, a matter of a point in time. Yes, he's got first place in, our, in my love right now. Yes, he's got first place in my being right now. Then he has first place in my spiritual experience that is starting then. So that preeminence is carried forward as we interchange, as we, as we um, converse with our wife or our spouse or, or our coworker, one of the saints, whatever we're doing, we have an experience. And that experience becomes a spiritual experience because throughout the duration of that experience, he was afforded preeminence. Then, if we do that, we can just generalize it a bit, enlarge it a bit, form another concentric circle of it a bit, and he has preeminence in our living. And then as he has, has experience in our preeminence in our living, he has preeminence in our whole personal universe. Then when he has preeminence in our whole personal universe, as I said, now as it relates to us, he is involved with everything without exception in our universe, and our universe is him. And he's our good land, and we're living in him. And we arrive at the conclusion where Christ is all and in all. So, you see, saints, this is, this is a continuation of he's expansive. Rendering his entire pneumatic being to match our physical, material uh, environment and using our physical, material environment to remind us that yes, he's with us, yes, he is the reason, the cause, the intrinsic reality of every single thing we do and touch, and we become persons who are living Christ. What an upgrade. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the outline now. Finish at five thirty. The meeting's five. Okay, good. <clears throat> so Roman number one, God's intention in His administration is to give Christ the preeminence in all things, to cause Christ to have the first place in everything. So this is His intention in His administration, as we have in these verses we read, verse fifteen in which he's the firstborn of all creation, in verse 18, which ends with the phrase that he might have the first place in all things. So this is his desire. A says that the entire world situation is under the rule of the heavens, 
by the God of the heavens to match his intention and his economy, of which Christ is the center. And the second of the, these verses here, the first is, is the picture in, in the book of Daniel of the Lord on the throne as the ancient of days administrating the entire universe. And the second one is an amazing um, quote of Nebuchadnezzar, this ancient Babylonian king, who in God's economy was convinced and was shown that the heavens rule. The heavens rule. So he said something like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to the heaven, and reason returned to me. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, blessed the Most High. So if Nebuchadnezzar has this realization, then certainly we should. And I praised, this is Nebuchadnezzar now. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praised and honored the ever-living one. For his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are to be considered as nothing. And then it goes, then it goes on. So this demonstrates the operation of God on the throne to um, show that indeed the heavens rule and that the throne operates. B says, for Christ to have the preeminence in all things, God needs a people. Isn't this wonderful? What if he is preeminent as he was in distant eternity and there were no people? Well, he was preeminent, but there was nothing relative to him. He was everything. But he needs a people to hold him in preeminence. You know, in the new heavens and new earth and in the kingdom age, there will be a people who will hold him preeminent. But they won't necessarily have become him. They, wouldn't, they will not have become him in life and nature. The nations in the kingdom. So they're people, and they will hold him as preeminent. But what he needs is a people whom he has chosen, whom he loves, whom he has approached, whom he's indwelling, to choose him and make him preeminent. And that is what gives him preeminence in the entire universe. So it needs a very specific people. Where on earth are these people? Well, I'm looking at them. <laughs> Who else? I mean, forgive me, but who else has this thought? I mean, not, not, that, not that we're anything, not that we're better than anyone, but who else has this thought that we need to give him preeminence? In, uh, so I had here in my notes, um, he's looking for a people who will treasure him. Treasure him. So <clears throat> he said in Exodus 19.5 that his people would be a particular treasure to him. And then in 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says, if anyone loves God, that one is known by him. So the one God knows is the ones who love him, hold him preeminent. Those are the ones that he needs. So we'd like to be those. C says, under the heavenly rule, God is using the environment to make Christ the centrality, the first, 
and the universality, everything to us. So according to Romans 8.28, all things work together for this, for him to have uh, the first place in all things. Now, um, although he's very quietly, sometimes almost daintily, sometimes almost imperceptibly uh, there with you, we do have these situations where it comes back to us, oh, I need him. Oh, I'm just in the dullness, the blackness, the darkness of my, of my fallen being. And where does this come from? Well, it comes from the operation of the throne, working in our environment to remind us of him. To remind us of him. So the throne operates to make us, to, to, to cause us to remember him and to contact him, which is that contact, that contact with him is our affording him the preeminence. So you have these two aspects of his speaking to us. He speaks to us quietly, sometimes imperceptibly, as the inward anointing, 1 John 2.27. But he also speaks to us quietly, um, discreetly, in our environmental situation. And so it's been said that if we hold our consciousness of him, which is to grasp, and lay hold of his anointing. He can be absolutely quiet related to our environment and situation. But if we don't hold him in our consciousness and we don't hold to and treasure his quiet sense within, then he may have to activate our environment in certain ways. Yeah. So it, it's somewhat up to us, somewhat up to us. Both are mercy. Both are his mercy. Now point two says, <clears throat> Christ has the first, so, so Roman number one is he has preeminence in the entire universe based upon the operation of his throne. Roman number two is he has the first place, the preeminence in the divine economy, in God's economy. So in Ephesians 1.10, we realize that eventually, he will head up all things in Christ. And First Peter tells us he will head up all things in Christ through the church. We also have this in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Colossians chapter 1 indicates that in God's economy, which is the new creation, he is the firstborn from among the dead, indicating he's the firstborn in resurrection, bringing forth the divine economy, in the new creation. <clears throat> now, A says, Christ is the preeminent one, the one who has the first place in everything. Now, I think we'll get, I think we'll still get to this point later that, or maybe I can just mention, mention it now, <clears throat> that is having the first place does not 
just mean that he has the first place. It means that he is unrivaled. It means that there's no other place. It means that the first place is the second place is the third place is the fourth place is, is et cetera, et cetera, on and on. And so this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful doctrine, doctrinal point. And we, we have, this, have this realization from a number of the pictures in, in the Bible where God considered the first to represent all. So Adam being the first man represented all men. The firstborn of the Egyptians who was to be smitten by the angel of death at the time of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt was to represent all the Egyptians. So Christ being the first in the old creation means that he is everything in the old creation as the firstborn from among the dead. As the, I'm sorry, as the firstborn of, all, of, of, of creation. Then in the new creation, he's the first, as the firstborn from among the dead. That means that we, as we enter into the new creation, are in that new creation to the degree that we are in Christ. And we've become Christ, and we're conscious of him. In those things which we don't have consciousness of him, and therefore don't afford him, afford him the preeminence, in those things, we are not the new creation because he's the new creation. He's the new creation. Okay, so <clears throat> B says, Christ is preeminent in the triune Godhead. The first, the Father exalts the Son, and the third, the Spirit always testifies concerning the Son. And so we have here um, these, these uh, excellent verses which show that God the Father exalts him and that the Spirit testifies of him. And so only the Son is called the Father, but neither the Father nor the Spirit is ever called the Son. So the Son, Christ, is central has the preeminence in the divine Godhead as given him, as afforded him in the divine Godhead. And so this is the initiation and the source of his preeminence in the entire universe. C says that Christ is preeminent in God's exaltation of him. So we mentioned a little bit about this, but these verses indicate that Christ has been in his resurrection, was exalted in his ascension to the heavens and was enthroned in, as Lord of all, and that he's head over all things. Amen. Now, D says, both in the old creation and in the new creation, both in the universe and in the church, Christ occupies the first place, the place of preeminence. And while um, I, I, I won't develop right now um, how the, the mystery of how 
Christ could be the firstborn of creation when he was born in time. Or should I? <laughs> well, okay, so, so Revelation 13.9 tells us that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world, indicating that, indicating that from that time, he, he, was, he was present before that time. Adam, we, we could say, well, uh, <clears throat> we could say that uh, Christ, having blood for, as a man for our redemption, was a creature, was a creature. And as a creature, he came forth at a certain juncture in time. And by the time he came forth as a creature in his incarnation, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, a lot of things had existed in creation by that time. But before his appearance in incarnation, at the time of Abraham, he appeared to Abraham as a man, according to all theologians. The man who came to Abraham in, in chapter, Genesis chapter 18 was Christ, God incarnate. And you can say, well, that still doesn't take you back to the beginning. <laughs> of course, we have Revelation 13.9, as I mentioned, but also we have, we have the fact that Adam was created, was created in the image of God. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the image of God is Christ. And so Adam, the first man, was created in the image of Christ, indicating that he was before Adam. Anyway, anyway, we have ground to understand this mystery that Christ is preeminent He's the first in the old creation and, and in, in the new creation. Amen. He says, for Christ to be the first means that he is all. Since Christ is first both in the universe and in the church, he must bring all things. He must be, oh, saints, he must be. Isn't this wonderful? Christ must be to us all things in the universe, and in the church. Amen. This is the revelation of the extensive Christ. He's all things in the universe. He's all things in the church. He's all things, he's all things for eternity. And so um, this, is, this is a great help to us to realize that uh, although <clears throat> he now, as our good land, the pneumatic Christ is not seen with the perceptual five senses. In the sixth sense, we can realize that he is the reality of every positive thing in the old creation and in the new creation. And so everything in the old creation and the new creation can bring him into Remembrance and can bring him into, into um, consciousness. Now, so here we come to uh, 
uh, this wonderful part <clears throat> that now applies this to us. Now remember, remember that as the one who is preeminent in the entire universe, he should simply have legislated that you would hold him preeminent. He would just have said that, but he didn't. He withdrew, stepped back, because he wants a relationship with you that is that comes out of your feeling for him in reciprocal affection. <clears throat> A, those who've been chosen by God to be his people for Christ's preeminence, we are under his heavenly rule. I said a little bit about that. B, Christ the preeminent one must be the centrality and universality in our church life, family life, and daily life. So saints, this is what we're this is what we're going for. And at the end of the conference, and maybe a few times between now and then, we'll talk about, we'll talk about Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word, in deed, do all things in the name. That is the person, the spirit, the person of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So this should be our pose, full consciousness and full involvement with him in everything in our church life, family life, and daily life. It's when we do this that we, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, give glory to him in all things. Point C says, under God's heavenly ruling, everything is working together for good. This is especially true of the things in our personal universe. So I believe I also mentioned that. <clears throat> D, in order to give Christ preeminence in all things, we must be willing to be adjusted, broken, made nothing, so that Christ can have a way in us, through us, and among us for the building up of his organic body. Now, do you know, uh, do you know, uh, do you want to or do you know how to be adjusted? Do you want to or do you know how to be broken? Do you want to or know how to be made nothing? Well, actually, you can't do any of that. First Corinthians 2.9. You have to live in him as the personal realm of the Savior you love. And as you, as you do that, everything that needs to be broken in you is broken. Everything that needs to be adjusted in you is adjusted is adjusted. And you, in your independent tendency, have been made nothing. So all we have to do, all we have to do is sustain, develop this capacity we have from our regeneration to hold him in our consciousness by loving him. So this leads to Roman number four. Christ should have the preeminence in our love in our love. So uh, you know that Revelation 2.4 refers to uh, his, our first love for him, referring not just to our the love we sense in regeneration, but that same love developed, experienced, channeled, and cycled again and again and again and again until, yes, it may in quality be the same, but in quantity, 
is multiplied. Yeah. It's reinforced. It's, it's, it's developed. So I made a little note here of these two verses of Song of Songs. Song of Songs 1-4, as you know, says, Draw me, Lord. Draw me, Lord. So this is the initial experience of someone who is awakened to seek the Lord, either newly or after an interval. Draw me, Lord. And so this is chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, The king is fettered by your tresses. I know you're saying, what does that mean and what does that have to do with chapter 1, verse 4? Well, in a previous translation, that means the king is held by her in the galleries. Well, this is poetic, of course. But this refers to the fact that after her love is developed and after she's grown and matured, then it's no longer a matter of, of her being drawn by him, but he is held in the galleries, that is, his administration, that is, on the throne. He's held there by her. She has restored to him his due preeminence. Now he's operating on the throne. He's held there by her, and in the context of that verse, by her beauty to him, which is her love for him. So eventually, eventually, our love for him gives him the way to have preeminence in the entire universe. Point A says, to give the Lord the first place in all things is to love him with a first love. We need to maintain, and note this, develop our first love for him. Every time we restore preeminence to him in a, in a small circumstance in our daily living. Remember, I haven't emphasized this adequately, but this is a relationship truth, a circumstantial application. That in this circumstance, I take him as my burnt offering. In this circumstance, I hold him preeminent. In this circumstance, I let him receive the laurels of victory in the face-off between him and what other things I hold important. I let him win. I let him be, pre be, be preeminent. Every time we do that, our love for him increases. We develop our love for him. Whatever one loves, but his whole heart, even his whole being, is set on and occupied by. So when we love him, our heart is set upon him. We're occupied by him, and we can live in him. Point C says, whether there would be a day of glory in the church's victory or grievous days of the church's decline depends upon what kind of love we have. And in our reference verses refer to uh, those who love the self, those who love money, derivatively, this means those who love anything else but him. When we love something else but him, we team up with the enemy who would like to dethrone him, who would like to replace him with a substitute, and we're under the authority of darkness rather than under, under being saints in the light in Colossians 1.12. So, <clears throat> saints, uh, again, we need to develop our love for him. Our love for the Lord must be absolute. We should not love anyone or anything above him. 
Matthew 10, 37 through 39. We love the Lord, hallelujah, because he first loved us, infusing his loving essence into us and generating within us the love with which we love him. Here, saints, is the secret. He's the commodity. He's the jet fuel. When we turn our heart to him, he infuses us with loving capacity with which we love him, have consciousness of him, live and walk in him, and have ongoing, uninterrupted again, experience of him, involvement with him. Saints, do you think this is too much? No. No, this is not too much. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses said, don't say this is too difficult for you. Don't say this is too difficult for you. This is in your mouth and in your heart. It's not too difficult. So, oh, we, we love the Lord according to the divine dispensing of the divine trinity as love. He pours himself as love into, into our being. Then our love for him increases, and we can testify nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Then Roman number five says, Christ then should have preeminence in our tripartite being. So, if we love him, the stage is set for something wonderful. That he has preeminence in our being. So, does he have preeminence in our being? Does he? Well, <clears throat> in the church life, we mention and, and may uh, use the term brothers. Exercise your spirit. Amen. So if I'm talking too softly, the brothers may say, brother, exercise your spirit. Amen. <laughs> so when we do that, we, we have the danger of giving the misimpression that to exercise our spirit is to be strengthened, work up uh, feeling, project our voice, and let something come out with conviction, intention. But that's not the exercise of the spirit, mainly. Now, the exercise of the spirit, in its true definition, can sound that way, but it can sound that way and not be the exercise of the spirit. The exercise of the spirit means that we give the Lord the preeminence in our being. The exercise of the Spirit is that we turn our heart to the Lord and we contact Him. Then we, when we contact Him, He infuses us, not only with love, but also with His burden. Then, infused with burden, we're not the same person. We have a new feeling, a new perspective. We're, we see what God sees, and we've got something to speak about, and we speak, Amen! Not because we want to shout, but because... We gave the Lord preeminence in our being, and we're one with him, and we're giving him release. Amen. So what we, need, what we need to do, saints, is realize 
that the Lord in the center of our being is potential energy. Is potential energy. As if I had a pallet of bricks hanging from the wall here. And if I cut the chain or the rope that's, hold, that's suspending it, what's going to happen? Crash! With power. With power. You've got the inertia of 100,000 million pallets of bricks in your spirit. And all you have to do is turn your heart and contact him. And that power, that potential energy, that power is automatically released. And you're a different person. And you're a person who is the mystery of godliness. You're a person who stands for the Lord, who represents the Lord, who can express him and give him outliving. Why? Because we gave him preeminence in our being. So I'll go down to D here. D says, we should allow Christ to fill our entire being and replace every aspect of our natural life with himself. Allow here again indicates that whether this happens and when it happens is totally up to us, and it depends upon our loving him, absolutely, our realizing that we need to have a consciousness of him, and that consciousness of him is afforded when we, in our love for him, give him preeminence. Remember, if he's not preeminent, if we're not conscious of him, we have not afford him, afforded him preeminence. So saints, how about we experiment, how about we experiment on endeavoring to hold the Lord, hold the Lord in our consciousness by giving him preeminence, holding him with us, touching him, contacting him in every unit of time. Maybe that unit of time, firstly, is every hour. Maybe that unit of time later is every half hour. And then it becomes every 10 seconds. And then we're living in the all-extensive Christ. Then Christ can have preeminence in our spiritual experiences. As When we do that, we merge histories with him. We don't do anything that he doesn't do, and nothing that he does is without us. We work and operate together because we've rendered him the preeminence in our being and in our spiritual experiences. Our life is his. His life is ours. How marvelous, huh? Now, <clears throat> then Roman numeral 7 says, Christ should have preeminence in our human living. So we put together these spiritual experiences, this becomes our human living, and we become persons who give the Lord the preeminence in our human living, and we live, we repeat the life of the Lord Jesus as the one who lived the life of the burnt offering. And as he gave the Father preeminence in his living, we give him preeminence in ours, and we live a replication of his life. Can we do this? We can because he's done it and he indwells us. 
He's made himself ultra-attractive, irresistible. So we, need to con we can contact him and release the potential energy that's there in our spirit so that he with we and we with he can live this way. Saints, this document you have in your hands, this document is more than an outline. It's an agreement. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an it's an instructional handout for you to carry out what the Lord is asking, asking us all to do. Okay, so we'll finish up here. B, <clears throat> the, king of the, the living of the believers must be in union with Christ. This means that in our living, we need to be one with him, just as the Lord was with, with the Father. We treasure 1 Corinthians 6, 17, don't we? That means that now we can and we should do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So point one says the name denotes the person, and the Lord's person is the spirit. Two, to do all things in the name of the Lord, Lord is to act in the spirit. This is to live Christ and to give him the preeminence in our human living. So, saints, Brother Jerry may want to say more about this, but he shared with us before the meeting that Brother Lee said that something that remains to be recovered is the living of Christ. So we're in the Lord's recovery. Amen. And what lies before us is to, based upon the revelation in Colossians, have a corresponding depth and breadth of experience. Live on him as our good land in a way such that we have a pervading consciousness of him and that in that living, in that living, he is everything. And he wins face-off after face-off in our personal experience. When challenged by a sharp word, when challenged by a situational setback, when challenged by something un unwelcome, or by challenged by something joyful, that we don't lose our bearings, don't lose our hold, we register and hold him until eventually we fulfill Colossians 3.17, do everything in word, in deed, all things in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord, in the, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him. Amen. So, do you see the sequence? Amen. How do we stay on the good land? By loving him and giving him the preeminence in our entire being. And then in doing so, we give back to him the lent and relinquished omnipotence and, and preeminence that he gave to us, trusting that we would do just that. Let's do it. Amen. 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 Uh, how about we have a little bit of prayer while the microphones are being set up? Uh, we can pray with our neighbor. Uh